So we're we're really if it hasn't happened yet, we we are coming very close to the time when the first Americans are going to be sentenced to years in prison for selling flavored e-cigarettes and menthol cigarettes. And nobody's really faced up to to the fact that this is going to be happening, and there's a lot of denial uh, that that this is going to be a challenge. Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. This is Christopher Snowden, the inventor of the half-hour chat show, and this is the Swift Half with Snowden. Um, thanks for joining us again, well, thanks uh, for joining us for the first time, yeah, for some of you. Um, but this is just a simple half-hour chat with somebody uh, I think you will be interested in. And I'm very pleased this week to be joined by Jacob Greer, who is a, an author, a journalist, and a cocktail expert um over in oregon i think you're in isn't it jacob that's right portland oregon which uh if you watch the news we, we've been uh getting a lot of coverage in the past few years you have indeed it, it, it looks like it's some kind of dystopian woke hellhole but presumably that's a slight <laughs> exaggeration what is it actually like over there yeah, well it is very woke uh the dystopian part is up for debate uh depends what part of town you're in to be honest you know there are there are parts of portland that are pretty rough uh, you can look at the statistics. Our downtown has had one of the worst recoveries in the U.S. Uh, so yeah, the the why, company, why is that? I, you know, everybody wants to blame some something. I don't want to pick out any single factor. Uh, obviously, uh, crime and drugs are a big issue here, uh, but we've also just had uh, the loss of tourism and the the move out of offices have really just you know, vacated downtown. So that a place that used to have people going to work, people staying in hotels and then supporting all of the, the businesses that were there uh, has gone away because people just aren't working uh, from home as much. They aren't visiting Portland as much. Uh, so yeah, then, I guess people don't want their, their premises firebombed. Which uh, yes, exactly, yeah. And you know, the, <laughs> the protests in 2020 were, were certainly a mixed bag in that regard. Um, I don't think that that's the issue now. <laughs> You know, the days of massive protests roiling the city have, have certainly passed, and we just have sort of more prosaic issues uh, with recovering from COVID and trying to revitalize the city at this point. Yeah, how's the weather today? It's absolutely shocking where, where I am. Uh, howling a gale, pouring down rain, as it has done pretty much for the last six months. Yeah, uh, I imagine, I've, I have not spent much time in London, but is that where you are? Are you in London? No, I'm down on the south coast, but That's fairly similar weather, just a bit worse. Yeah, uh, it's Portland is its typical grey self today. Right, it's relatively cold, isn't it, most of the time? Yeah, yeah, like a little British weather, pretty much. Yes, like I don't, when I travel to the UK, I don't really have to change my wardrobe. Yeah, that sounds all right. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, now, I wanted to get you on the show because I know you've got a new book out, which is a, a collection of essays. We've been writing about tobacco and vaping for roughly the same, oh, you've got, got it there, yeah, the new prohibition. We've been writing about this for roughly the same amount of time, which I guess makes us fairly old hands. And this is, it's very depressing, isn't it? Writing about, I find anyway. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, uh, I mean, it gives us a lot to write about because- <laughs> Yeah, you, I genuinely would rather not have anything like this to write about. Yeah, I mean, when you're, when you're winning at an issue, you, you don't have as much to, to write about. When you're, when you're constantly losing, then, then you- have many occasions to uh, to write about what the, the people you disagree with are getting wrong and how their policies are having bad effects. Yeah, and America in some respects is is really very bad on this. I mean, the UK is not, not great, but it is good on vaping. I don't know if you saw the stuff this week from the UK 
about how the government of the National Health Service is going to start essentially prescribing e-cigarettes, just giving them away to about a million smokers, particularly whoever they classify as vulnerable, pregnant women in particular, um, which I was a in two minds about for a long time because i thought well you know if you can afford to smoke you can really afford to vape you know we've got cheap disposables now which there's a bit of a panic about but i mean they're cheap and disposable so if you can afford 13 pounds for a pack of cigarettes which is what it is now you probably afford five pounds for the vape. but then i got thinking that the the big issue the big problem uh, with um, the whole vape market these days which is i think basically a market failure is that people think that they're way more dangerous than they are and partly you've got you guys in America to thank for that. And a lot of your junk scientists who are, we, we get this rubbish about popcorn lung and formaldehyde and so on coming across the Atlantic to us. And, and the, the stats are very similar in America, but over time, people's confidence in e-cigarettes, people's understanding of the relative risk, have just got worse and worse and worse. It's a huge failure of public health. So the main issue I think governments need to address if they're willing to is, is that information asymmetry as economists would say it's that consumer ignorance and i think through signaling effects just the fact that the nhs is handing out e-cigarettes to people for free is is a good way of dealing with that right because the nhs wouldn't be giving something to pregnant women which is worse for them than smoking or anywhere near as bad as, as, as smoking so that's kind of good i think as a beacon not just in the uk but but around the the world but at the same time we've got the smoke free 2030 target and Vaping is still, from a lot of people's perspective, being tolerated, but you know, maybe they'll encourage it for five or ten years, but then they're going to clamp down on that. But in the yeah. USA, you don't even have that, do you? I mean, it's no, not yeah. yeah, I tweeted about the UK news uh, yesterday from one of my other accounts on local politics, just because uh, we're, we're taking the opposite tack. And, you know, I live in Portland, Oregon, which is arguably one of the most drug-friendly cities in the world. You know, we have some of the most liberal policies that you, you have anywhere. We've uh, we've one of the first states to legalize recreational cannabis. Uh, we've just legalized psychedelic therapy. We're the first state in the U.S. to do that. Uh, we've decriminalized virtually all drugs. Uh, we we've made it legal to get cocktails to go for the first time ever. <laughs> and and the county where I live has just banned all forms of flavored nicotine and tobacco. And the state of Oregon is looking at a bill to do the same thing right now too. So it's it's very hypocritical that we. We live in a place where the, the language of harm reduction, especially with regard to opioids, is embraced. It's part of our public policy. You know, we're encouraging uh, the availability of Narcan everywhere people can get it, uh, but we're banning flavored vapes. <laughs> and right. so, so I agree with you. I, I, I posted that yesterday uh, as an example of you know, people who say you're serious about harm reduction, look at what they're doing in England and the UK and compare that to what we're doing in Oregon and, and realize that we need to be a lot smarter about this. People often ask me why it is that, you know, it's not just Oregon, you know, but around the world, governments are getting a bit more relaxed about particularly cannabis, but also some psychedelics. Um, and yet we're seeing this clamp down, not just on tobacco, but on e-cigarettes. I know in America, you kind of call them on tobacco or the FDA does this, but yeah. Um, I, I never have a very good answer for it other than it's just kind of a generational backlash, you know, and, and some things are fashionable and then they become unfashionable. Have you got a theory as, as to why that is? I think it's some of that. And also, you know, um, tobacco has always been coded as a right wing thing, especially right. in the US. Uh, and, you know, big tobacco is unlike the, the other products we talked about, the you know, cannabis and psychedelics is, is not 
historically there haven't really been big corporations behind them. Yeah. And so I think if if you're on the left, you you look at tobacco and you see a big corporation that is evil, or at least was evil in the 1990s. And yeah, and I think people haven't updated their mental model from you know the image of thank you for smoking or the insider and that sort of you know 1990s image of big tobacco versus the reality of what it is now, which is still selling cigarettes, but also doing really good science and developing safer products because they've created the incentives. Uh, where that makes sense for them. It's not that it's not that they've all suddenly become more virtuous <laughs> or you know better people. It's just that you know the incentives have changed, and now they they really are doing good science and making safer products. Yeah, and this flavor ban thing is that's even come is kind of raised its head a bit in the UK because I say there's a bit of a panic about teenagers um, using the disposables, very similar to the panic in America about Juul um, uh, only a few years ago. And I don't think the government is going to ban flavors, but it's being it's being discussed. Certainly, you've written about the Massachusetts uh, flavor ban. How did that go, Jacob? Yeah. So, so, so for people who don't know, Massachusetts is a mid-sized state in the U.S. Pretty good-sized population, but also has uh, a lot of border states, including New Hampshire, uh, which is very low tax when it comes to tobacco. So, uh, New Hampshire has always had, or Massachusetts rather, has always had fairly high tobacco taxes. Uh, and then in 2020, they became the first state in the United States uh, to completely ban all forms of flavored tobacco, including menthol cigarettes, uh, as well as all kinds of flavored vaping products. Uh, and as people would have predicted, when you have uh, a state that borders other states where these things are readily available, a lot of people just started buying them uh, from, from New Hampshire and from other states and then bringing them into Massachusetts. Uh, and so there's been a lot of confusion uh, about how this is playing out and a lot of denial about what the effects are going to be. Uh, because the uh, the image is always raised in the U.S. that, you know, if we if we ban these products, uh, smokers are going to be pulled off the street and hauled into prison. <laughs> and, and of course, you know, the, the advocates of these bans can respond that that's accurately like this is not how that works. You know, it doesn't penalize use. But they totally ignore the fact that uh, this interacts with our tax laws uh, and that when you bring, when you force these products onto the black market, you, at the same time, are forcing people who sell them uh, to commit a felony uh, because they're not paying taxes on these products, obviously. Uh, and so the the state task force in Massachusetts has put out a report two years in a row, talking about uh, how things have changed, and they now say that cross-border smuggling of flavored tobacco products, including vaping, uh, is the the biggest problem that they face. Uh, they've seized so many products that they've actually had they've run out of storage space. <laughs> this is one of the problems they noted in their official report. Like, we've had to lease a new storage facility because we're seizing so many menthol cigarettes and flavored vapes. Uh, and then they, they're arresting people. They're doing seizures. Uh, you know, they're, they're seizing people's cars. They're seizing tons of illegal products. Uh, there's at least uh, two people right now who are facing felony prosecution. Uh, the cases haven't been completed yet, but, you know, the guys who they've caught bringing these flavored products into Massachusetts are facing five years in prison each uh, for this. Really? So we're, we're really, if it hasn't happened yet, we, we are coming very close to the time when the first Americans are gonna be sentenced to years in prison for selling flavored e-cigarettes and menthol cigarettes. And nobody's really faced up to, to the fact that this is gonna be happening. And there's a lot of denial uh, that, that this is gonna be a challenge. So this is really what the the theme of the book is about, you know, the new the new prohibition, and not just of of cigarettes, which may well be on its way, 
for reasons we'll discuss in a moment, I think. And but obviously also he had probably e-cigarettes before tobacco, quite possibly, right? What's that? Possibly the, the prohibition will be on e-cigarettes before it's on cigarettes in America. I mean, at least for like almost every, pretty much every flavor. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the FDA is, is regulating e-cigarettes is terrible here. Uh, it's incredibly hard to get a product authorized. And so other than the, you know, small handful of products, which depending on how you count is probably about a dozen uh, that have been authorized and none of them are popular. You know, they're, they're some of the big brands in the U.S., but they're never they're not the popular models. They're only in tobacco flavors. So it's yeah. not what adults actually use. You know, we know from the stats that adults generally prefer flavors just like everybody else. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so now, you know, the predictable outcome of this is that uh, we have huge illicit markets. Like we're just like, yeah, I think you have in England, we're getting just lots of Chinese vapes flooding the market that are totally unregulated. You know, they just, they just come in kind of through a sort of shady gray market sales and, you know, other products are on the market until the FDA gets around to ordering them off. And, and then we'll see what happens. You know, because it's not it's not an easy thing to forbid. You know, the nicotine liquid is readily available. You can't ban flavors. Flavors are readily available. Uh, so there's clearly going to be a lot of illicit sales, and then it'll become a question of what that enforcement looks like. And what's uh, what's the state of public opinion? I mean, do you know how people in Massachusetts feel about the police wasting all their time and their storage space on this weird war <laughs> on flavors? I yeah, mean, I, I guess my my question is. My sense of it from being, you know, thousands of miles away is that there was a genuine hysteria about youth vaping in particular and, and, and vaping in general, really, but particularly high school vaping. Um, but I, of course, I don't know whether that was something that, yeah, in, according to surveys, people are concerned about it, but their concerns are really quite shallow or if parents in particular were genuinely, you know, horrified. Yeah, I think there was some of, you know, the parents being horrified. Uh, I think the bigger issue, you know, which ties into things that you and I both covered for 20 years, is that uh, for the average person, they have zero concern for people who smoke or use nicotine. And so it doesn't take much to push them over the edge of supporting a ban or a restriction or, or whatever the policy is. Um, you know, like we've, I've talked about this with, with smoking bans. You know, I think the average person just wants to be able to go to a bar or a restaurant and not come home smelling like smoke. They don't necessarily advocate banning all cigar bars or like every social space that a smoker could go to. You know, they don't necessarily advocate you know, bans on parking and uh, bans on smoking in every outdoor space, uh, but they don't care either. <laughs> and so, yeah, exactly. so, so when the people who, who actually make the policy, you know, which are you know, Bloomberg activists and you know, very dogmatic people in public health and then legislatures who don't really know anything, you know, there's no resistance uh, per se. And so I think that's the big issue with, you know, with things like vape bans uh, is the average person doesn't really think about it, doesn't really care. And it just requires a little bit of a nudge to get them to say, yeah, sure, ban this. Uh, why not? Because they're not educated on the issue and they don't care about smokers and vapors. Uh, and then, and the other issue is just the press coverage is appalling, yeah. <laughs> as you're well aware. And, and there's the obvious ways where it's, where it's terrible, like just getting basic facts wrong and being very alarmist. Uh, but also their framing on the issues is just always wrong. And like even in Oregon's a great example when we have our debates over uh, these flavor bans, 
you know, the way the way the journalists always approach it is, you know, they get the pro side and it's somebody who sounds like very noble and credentialed, you know, uh, some kind of PhD or doctor or like head of a nonprofit who's making the public health case for why we have to ban these products for the children, et cetera, et cetera. And then they get the anti-ban case and it's just somebody who owns a vape or tobacco shop. Yeah. And they just frame it as a pure business issue and they don't get anybody to make the harm reduction case. They don't get anybody to actually just make the case that, hey, I'm someone who vapes. This is hypothetically, I don't actually vape, but you know, I, I somebody who's could, could say like, hey, I vape, it's my body, it's my right. Who are you to tell me that I that I can't have this flavor? You know, that side of the argument is just never presented at all. Yeah, it's, I, it's like a public health versus business story. And that's the framing that our press ever gives it. Yeah, and I guess we're a bit luckier in the UK in that you have got quite a few public health people who will make the harm reduction case. Um, yeah, we have yeah. them here. Like the journalists just have to pick up the phone and call. Well, that's true, yeah. But they don't do it. Yeah, I was just re recently rereading uh, Manker Olson's Logic of Collective Action. And if you ever read that one, it's a great um, book from the 60s, uh, really important public choice theory type book. And yeah, he, his main thesis, which I think absolutely holds, is that small minorities get their way over large majorities all the time because they're just more motivated to do it. And, you know, millions of smokers or millions of vapors can't compete with the Bloomberg funded organization. Yeah, basically, people need to have some kind of funding or compensation for their time. Otherwise, they're just not going to bother. Um, and the only thing that can get in the way would be just the general public who are not on either side, in this instance, people who don't vape and don't smoke, saying, no, we don't think it's right that you should have to walk you know, 30 yards from a doorway to, to have a cigarette, or you shouldn't have access to menthol flavors. But of course, they, they, they people don't really. Um, and it's a kind of, when people don't have a self-interested reason, you can only rely on them to basically have a liberal liberal you know values i guess let's say fair uh, uh, opinion and over time partly thanks to the media as you say i think that's kind of disappeared which is very worrying for people with our kind of perspective yeah and, and that that gets to a point that i i get into this argument a lot with people who are on the uh the, the pro harm reduction side in tobacco control but then who are also i call it kind of prohibition light you know they don't want to prohibit prohibit anything but you, everything, but you know, they want to prohibit certain products. And so they have this very technocratic view of government that you know we, we gather the evidence, we present it, we have smart people make the laws, and then we ban the bad stuff and allow the not so bad stuff. And we, we sort of guide people to the right decisions. Uh, and that's like, that sounds like a good idea, but you and I both know that's not how government works. You know, the uh, the people on the Multnomah County Board where I live, you know, they don't understand the arguments. They don't look at the evidence. You know, they're listening to these, you know, room full of Bloomberg activists. Uh, and the, it's just not a winning argument for them. And it's difficult to make that a winning argument for, for the public choice reasons that you, you just mentioned. Uh, but an argument that they could understand and that they do uh, when it comes with other drugs is, Adults have the right to make their own choices. You leave adults alone. Uh, you know, you can you can tax things, you can put some restrictions on it, but ultimately, at the end of the day, you respect adults' you know, decisions on what they do with their own body. Uh, so, I 
one of the things I argue in, in the new book is that we need to get back to this basic principle because that can be a winning argument. Uh, and, and, you know, in a liberal society that that can persuade people a lot easier than, you know, showing them a research paper, you know, modeling what the uh, you know, life year saved would be from a transition to vaping. So you're you suggesting that we don't really have evidence based policy in this area. I hate to I hate to be the bearer of bad news. <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid the uh, Multnomah County uh, Council isn't always following the evidence on such things. Uh, one of the chapters in your book, um, which I was reminded of actually yesterday because I, I tweeted something from the Third Hand Research Center or the Third Hand Smoke Research Center. So a group I follow on Twitter. This is a kind of mad hypochondriac kind of movement that's never really got any traction outside California, as far as I know. Um, and every time I, now and again, I will retweet one of their bizarre tweets and people go, is this a real thing? You know, can you just tell us what third hand smoke is supposed to be and, and who these people are? Yeah, I mean, well, it is something that exists. Like every, everybody knows, like if, you, if you've if you been out smoking and you come into the room, like we can smell smoke on your jacket. Like we know that there's residue. Or if you walk into a room that people have smoked in, you know, or, or if you work in, walk into an excellent British pub, <laughs> you know, pre-smoking ban, you know, you, you can you can still get the patina on the walls. Still got my snooker club, I have to say, even after all these years. Yeah, exactly. We have a bar in Portland. It's the same way. It was like the smokiest bar in town. Uh, it's a British pub. It's called the Horse Brass. Cool. Same yeah. way. <laughs> the Horse Brass. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so the idea is that there is, you know, these chemicals still exist in the world and the residues are, you know, on surfaces. Uh, but nobody's ever really done any science showing that this is a significant harm, that this is something people need to be really afraid of. Uh, but yeah, the third-hand smoke research, such as it is, is all about building up these fears uh, and saying that, you know, it's not enough to kick smokers out of the room because of secondhand smoke. We have to kick them out of everywhere because of third-hand smoke. And so, like, the guidance on on their website is really insane. Yeah. <laughs> what they tell people to do, like, they want you when you rent a car to you know inspect the car for any signs that somebody may have smoked in it once and return it if, if they have and you know before you pick a hotel you know to to not just make sure that it's a smoke-free hotel but you know to make sure that they don't let people smoke within 50 feet of the outdoors not just you know 20 yeah. feet uh, really just bizarre behavior that no normal human being would engage in and but but then as you know they use that as cover to say that we just have to ban smoking across the board because, you know, this stuff lives in the walls and the carpets for decades and there's no way to get rid of it. So we just and have what, to. What do they think is going to happen to people who, who smell stale smoke in a carpet? They're going to get cancer? Not, not really cancer. I've never seen like a really concrete claim on what the risk is supposed to be. Yeah. I mean, the idea is that these chemicals are, you know, carcinogenic in, in some form, but how you get exposed to them. <laughs> matters and in what quantity you get exposed to them matters and you know being next to someone who's where has a smell of smoke on their jacket is not the same as living with someone who smokes in the living room for 30 years or indeed smoking yourself yeah it's, yeah. it's so only in california really i guess it's a pretty good grift i mean the, the these guys are getting state funding from uh, yeah from the california government. It's, it's yes it's it's a budget i would love to have i'll put it that way it was <laughs> exactly yeah yeah um, you're also, as I mentioned, a, 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 a cocktail expert, and you've got a book about that out as yeah, well, I see on Twitter. 
Have you got a yes. copy of that to show us too? Yeah, yeah. Got that one here. This is uh, raising the bar. This is for making cocktails at home. Yeah, so that is right here. Uh, That's a remember. nice looking book, by the way. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, the perk of working with a really good publisher. Like we, I can't take any credit on the design. They did an awesome job with it. Oh, they got, we got a great illustrator named Woody Harrington who did illustrations throughout the book. Uh, so yeah, I imagine a lot of your listeners enjoy a, a good drink now and then. Yeah, a cocktail's a very big during COVID, of course. There's yeah, a, and, and, and honestly, sure this, <laughs> you'll appreciate this. Uh, like I actually had the idea for this book years ago. And the only reason I didn't have it out in 2020 is I chose to write my previous tobacco policy book, which if I could go back in time and do the, uh, the cocktail book first so that my home bartending book was out in 2020, I would yeah. definitely do that over because uh, it would have been the perfect uh, pandemic book to have out. Instead, we ended up writing yeah. it. Yeah, we ended up writing it in 2020 instead, which right. you know worked out pretty well. <laughs> But I mean, yeah, the quick part for the book is uh, this is a guide to like, uh, well, I'll, I'll say it's, it, it came out of frustration of reading modern cocktail books. And, that, and I don't know if you've picked many of these up, but yeah, yeah and, and a lot of them, the recipes are ridiculously complicated, like, because they're, they're the kind of drink you would go to a very high-end bar and have where it makes sense to do a lot of homemade ingredients and esoteric spirits and these things. Uh, but, you know, I, sometimes I just want to come home and you know, open a cocktail book and find something new to make that I can just pull bottles off the shelf and make and not have to, you know, spend an hour in the kitchen to prepare it. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so we created this book to, to uh, be for people to stock your home bar. We take you one bottle at a time. And so the idea is that as you advance through the chapters, we never call on ingredients that haven't been called for in a previous chapter. So when you bring in a new bottle, like say Benedictine, we're going to give you a dozen cocktails you can make with that using it and the other ingredients we've already called for. Good idea. They should do the same with, with food recipe books. Maybe they do. I don't know. Yeah, we thought about it. There's always too many ingredients in, in recipe books in general. Yeah, so, so it's a fun project. It's very, very practical. It's getting you know really good feedback so far. So if you're someone out there who likes a, uh, a cocktail at home now and then, raising the bar is what it's called. And uh, I think you'll get a lot of fun out of it. Cool. Well, folks at home, all of that. If you're into your cocktails, also you mentioned your previous book, Rediscovery of Nick, uh, Tobacco. Yep. That's what it's called, isn't it? Yeah, which is yeah, brilliant. You got, well, that, you got that too. That. I got the props. Yeah, the uh, the Rediscovery of Tobacco, and the new one is the uh, the new Prohibition. Very good book. Just quickly, you only got like one minute left. Where yeah. where how, where's it all going to end, Jacob? Where's all this Prohibition going? Are we going to have to go through the whole thing again? Have all the organised crime and then repeal it, or is it going to stop before then? Ooh, that's a tough question. I mean, I think Massachusetts is going to go through it again. <laughs> oh, yeah. A few other states. It'd be great if we could stop it uh, before it goes national in the U.S. Uh, I think that's going to be tricky. Well, maybe we'll you know, learn the lessons from other states. But, you know, you know what happened you know, over 100 years ago? We did have statewide alcohol prohibition, and there was a whole lot of cross-border sales, and the solution was to have nationwide prohibition. Exactly. And we you see know? that idea. And then when you have the the smuggling coming into America, you really need to have worldwide prohibition. That's a, that's a part of the prohibition story a lot of people don't know about is the, the anti-saloon league then have this, we're going to have worldwide prohibition. It's the only way to make America safe from food. Fortunately, it didn't get that far, as we all know, but who knows Who knows what will happen in the future. Jacob, thanks very much for joining us. We're out of time. Thank you very much. Um,
for uh, for watching. Thank you, especially if you're an IA donor, if you're not, or if you already are and you want to give us more money, ia.org.uk slash donate. Um, until a fortnight's time, take care and see you later. Bye-bye.